Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoiseshack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As usual, I'm asking you for your support. I want you to put your hands in your pocket and pay it forward so the Tortoiseshack can remain independent, ad-free, sponsor-free and not having to do some live reads for some Sky TV show or some other nonsense. Well, the podcasts we put out are free, the work clearly has a value. And the only way that keeps going is if some of you pay it forward so everybody else can listen. The easiest way to do it is click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. You get a ton of extras for that, including all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed, totally plea free. So you don't have to listen to me beg, but beg I must. As Father Peter McVeary said to me before, people are brilliant at compassion. They're not so great at solidarity. But whatever about solidarity, I need your compassion. It, it really is your compassion that gives us the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month and keeps this show on the road. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I am Sam McElveen and as ever I'm joined by my trusty co-host Gareth Movena. How are you doing tonight Gareth? Not too bad Sam. Ticking along nicely. Thank you for asking. Yeah well I sort of feel like half a half too because you know being hasty and stuff you might leave me and go on the bigger and better things. Oh no no fear of that. Never. I'm loyal. <laughs> You're, you're loyal I know. I, I'm loyalist so take, take from that what you may. Um, tonight we are joined by Jordan Dunbar, and this has been one that's been a while in the making because we wanted to get this right. Jordan is a BBC presenter and documentary maker. Uh, his podcast, Blood on the Dance Floor, I listened to and Gareth listened to some time ago, and we were that blown away by it. We thought we have to get this guy on because it just needs, needs to be heard. So, Jordan, thank you for joining us. No bother. Thanks very much for asking me. It's great to be on. Yeah. Hiya, Jordan. Thanks for taking the time to... to do this it's really appreciated i could talk about these stories all day long i i love it i'm absolutely <laughs> passionate about getting it as far as i possibly can so thank you for letting me no Brilliant. problem well i suppose the question i asked you off there that we said we wouldn't ask because we'll do it on our i'll ask now why darren why why this story why why the story of darren bradshaw the ruc officer well Looking back, because of the massive success that it's been and kind of going going through the investigation and learning not just about Darren's story, but the story of the Parliament and the Drag Queens and Belfast Pride going on that long journey, it feels really weird to me now how it happened. I normally present mental health documentaries and a programme called The Climate Question, which is the BBC's climate change show, but I was off work. I was, I was on sick leave. I shouldn't have been working, but I was going through Twitter and a picture came up and it was a black and white picture. And even though it was a black and white picture, there was something about this young guy's eyes that were very lifelike. They grabbed me and I wouldn't normally click on the sort of the, the victim's tweets i would recognize a lot of the names of the different places and so on but for whatever reason i clicked on this picture and it said are you see officer darren Bradshaw shot dead in the parliament bar i thought that's 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 a bit odd because I, I thought i would have heard about a raid on the gay bar right like surely that that was that like a stonewall moment that i sort of missed here or you know was there a riot or something then i looked more into it and then discovered that no he had been drinking in the parliament bar and shot dead and sort of my the gears turned slowly and i was like but how long why is a straight police officer drinking in a gay bar and that is basically because how shocking it was like linking the idea of a, a gay ruc man being in a even having a gay ruc man and from that moment on i thought wow there's really there's something to this how did i not know because i had been doing drag and comedy we performed in the shoe factory as part of the kremlin and i'd been in yellow and villa as it is now that was the parliament bar like i was in there all the time new people who worked in all of these different bars we'd never talked about this none of the gay people on the scene had talked about this and i just thought this is bizarre that this has been forgotten and then when i found out that it wasn't until 2018 that he'd ended up on the 
rule of honor that there was a memorial for him. I thought, how has this slipped through the cracks? And I thought about me. I thought, but when it comes to the troubles, like it's 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 always orange and green, right? There's always each side. And while you may have had more progressive politics recently that you may, you know, give to one side or the other, the whole of being gay and the troubles just doesn't really come up. Like you sort of like pick a side, which one are you on? And that's when I thought, wow, this is a really interesting way of looking more than 25 years after Dan's death about what it was like to be gay at that turning point. Because this isn't the Troubles, quote unquote, like the 70s or the 80s. This is like just before the new history begins. Tony Blair's in. Peace is coming. He's, you know, 11 months away from the ceasefire. I was really young then, but even I remember how different things were about to become. And then I started thinking, I was at the Kremlin, I was doing this. Where did that come from? Who did that? These guys that were going out to these bars, how difficult was that? We have pride, but, and just everything fell into place. And it all came from me just randomly seeing that one tweet, seeing his face and it haunting me and me thinking, I really, I need to know more. And because I performed with the likes of Tina, uh, Tina like Santrum and Trudy, I knew like what great crack they were. Like they're just incredible characters and working in London here, I thought, these are true Northern Irish characters that will be able to tell the story incredibly. And I just know being from Belfast, not just Northern Irish people, Belfast people are incredible storytellers. It's not just Darren's story here. It's like, how was there a parliament bar for him to be even go into? And it all, the more that I spoke to people, the more twists that were in the story, the more courageous people were and coming out and speaking to us. It was just that moment where I looked at that photograph just seemed like, I don't know, was it fate? Was it complete coincidence? Don't know, but it's certainly changed my life. Yeah, you, you, you're talking there. Sorry, Gareth, I was just going to say, you're talking about what we didn't do at the beginning was, was launch into the fact that Darren was, was gay. We, we didn't put that out there because we, we feel we don't have to, but I suppose for people who are listening to this and haven't listened to your podcast, we're, we're talking about a gay scene that didn't really exist, you know, and then all of a sudden it did. And one of those, one of those, communities or subcultures as we would look at them and I mean Gareth would look at them existed outside of the orange and the green they were they were set off it and, and they were trying to get along and whilst the orange and the green were battling off the animosity was still pointed towards the gay culture at that point as well I mean Gareth has done a vast amount of research into this and he he certainly got a lot of questions in around that as well um but yet it I I spoke to you on the phone Jordan and we discussed this and I said I went to the Parliament yeah, because it was somewhere I could go as a straight man that I wasn't looked at looked at as orange or green. Yeah, the mu- the music was good, the crack was good, and you didn't have that look of somebody in the corner going, "Where are you from?" They didn't care, and that's that's the way it was at that point. And yeah, it it just grew from that. I think yeah, the the thing that really struck me there, Jordan, and and thanks for you know that introduction because it's fascinating how people come to research any subject so it's it's really good to, he- to hear that you know just a photograph had that impact on you and then you went on that journey of trying to work out more about the story and and what struck me there is the fact that within the gay community in Belfast it wasn't really talked about until you maybe brought it up as a subject and, and started running people's memories and getting them to talk about that period why do you think that Darren wasn't talked about and like don't get me wrong I'm not expecting like you go on a night out or you go and meet friends and all of a sudden it'll organically come up oh there was this RUC um, officer killed um, years ago why why is it not more commemorated why is it not better remembered within the gay community now one thing I would say as an outsider who has done some research and um, done some stories relating to the 70s and 80s that you talk about is the gay community, and I'm, I'm not talking about this as a blanket term because everyone's different and it's the same with any community you, you work with or research, they haven't been great at taking ownership of their own stories and, and, and promoting them. That's my sense because it's only recently you've had the um, Belfast LGBTQA um, history project and that's been brilliant. That's been great, Richard O'Leary. And, you know, Jeff Dudgeon's always been there in the background trying to tell these stories but even when i said to jeff you need to 
tell your story. You need to record these experiences. He said, oh, that's for somebody else to do. So why are these stories not better promoted and told within the gay community? Um, I would say Darren's in particular, if we just take that first, is multi-layered. It's so unbelievably complex. First of all, and this is one thing that really drew me, Darren died just at the start of when history moved faster than I think ever before. Certainly one of the moments. Bang, you've suddenly got big Tony's in, right? So he, the back channel talks are happening, Machine Fee and the IRA. Things are moving faster. Tesco's and Sainsbury's have arrived. It just... Things moved so quickly that Darren seemed to get lost because so quickly after that, there were there were more killings, there were a lot of tit-for-tat killings. And then after that, you go straight into the peace process and the narrative becomes very different, doesn't it? Because then it becomes about looking forward and it's all about the peace agreement and how things changed. So I think dying on the cusp of the peace process meant that it got lost. Also, I think many people we spoke to were too afraid to speak up. They were afraid to speak up because they were scared of the terror groups. They were they were scared of, of saying what they knew and talking about this for recriminations, as you can understand. And then the other thing is, Darren was an RUC officer at, at the time he was suspended, but you know he was for all intents and purposes as they knew he was an RUC officer, and there hadn't been a great relationship between the queer community and the RUC. So that really played into it. But this, the thing that really saddens me about that is when Darren died, there's archive footage of Jeff Dudgeon and PA McLaughlin, who are head of the Northern Ireland Gay Rights Association. They come down with flowers and they say something to the effect of they'd actually met Darren during training, the RUC. So the RUC had invited them in to do training um, you know, about the queer community. And they had said he was so helpful, so polite. He was everything that you could ask for in a police officer. We need more Darrens and less of the terrorists. And it, it it's heartbreaking because he was could have been the change, right? He was, you know, it took us ten years later to go through that massive change with the PSNI and their LGBT outreach. But Darren was trying that at the time and then his life got cut short. So it was a complex relationship between the police and also lots of people, even the witnesses I heard, they just had to get on with life. They just it, there was so much going on, including them having to hide their sexuality. This was just another awful thing to happen to them that I don't think they felt they wanted to go back and remember those times. And it's only me, who's too young for any of this to have happened, and who's outside of Belfast looking in, going, hang on a second, guys, this is really, really big. Like, this was a momentous moment. This had changed, because at the time... There were so many different killings, both before and after. I think it got a bit lost. That's Darren in particular. In terms of like the LGBT community telling their stories, I mean, right now there's there's loads happening. There's been big projects. Um, looking at the history, I went to a screening when I was back last year, looking, and that was the 70s and 80s, with people like Jeff Dudgeon and Cara Friend and how they started and the scene that they had. And speaking to Jeff, actually, he said something wonderful to me. He was like, young people think that back then all we did was sit around, you know, get oppressed and just be miserable. But actually, we were having, we were making love. We were dancing. We were partying. We were having a great time. We were living. And the screening of um, the program, you got to see loads of photos of them having parties up in near Queens and a whole area that I think younger people you don't really think of at that time. It's like when I think of my parents growing up, like in the 70s, I think it's just total misery. But obviously there was real, you know, there was beautiful moments and like great house parties. So I think those stories are starting to be told. I know Jude Copeland, he's been working quite hard to get memorials. He's been working for a Mark Ashton memorial up in Portrush, a gay rights activist who worked with the miners. So I think those are starting. And certainly with Blood on the Dance Floor, when I was pitching it, because obviously I can have all the ideas I want, but I have to convince people to give me people to work with and give me money and time to go and do this. And when I was pitching, it, it was very much like this story hasn't been told before. And that is part of the story. Why? And that was really interesting. But definitely, no, I think that queer stories are, are coming to the front. 
And you see that with Pride, and there's walking tours now too, so I think they really are starting. But for so long, it's been all about the orange and green. Like, there wasn't, you couldn't hear, they were being told, you just couldn't hear them, because that's all that was happening. And you can't really blame people for that, because of everything that we've gone through, but I think we're getting to a slightly more mature phase now, where you're looking at different like what it was like being a woman through the troubles or a mother through the troubles or being gay through the troubles or whatever it might be that it was so many multi-layers well that's just i mean just before sam comes in there i pay tribute to the people who are taking these initiatives because i think it is important to get beyond the orange and green history and tell the more uh textured histories that we 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 have here and one that i always go back to and was lucky enough to talk to her a couple of years ago was moya morris and she did the Threads collection, which was stories of lesbian life in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s. And that collection, it's not widely available, but it's fantastic. It's just those first-hand accounts of you know going to venues like the Chariot Rooms, what it was like to discover that you were a, a gay woman in you know rural Ulster in the 1970s. Just these fantastic histories that live, live alongside the sectarian history and, and among it's within that context. But it gives a really, really rich sort of insight into what else was going on in Northern Ireland at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And you just sort of think, life was tough enough if you were growing up queer to then have this added. You know, it would have been tough in the Republic and it would have been tough in the rest of the UK. But just to have this added layer on top of it, if not many layers, just making life so much more difficult. And Cara Friend, they gave all their... Do you guys know Cara Friend? Yeah. Yeah. So they... Yeah, well, I'll just say for any of the audience who don't. So Care Friend are a, a queer charity who, who now help out with all different sorts of things from health initiatives to, to helplines. But back when they started, they had a PO box. So that's how you communicated. And it was anonymous. So you would write to Care Friend and they gave their letters. They anonymized them and then they went to the Prony Archives, the public record office. And we were lucky enough to see them, Paul and I, the producer. We went through and... They are both heartbreaking and absolutely hilarious. There's a wee guy from Bangor. This is like, I think, about in the 80s. And he basically writes in. He's like, look, I know I'm I'm gay. I don't know. I just don't know how to meet. Like, I don't know where you'd meet a gay person. I have no idea. And he's not in Belfast, so he's not, not able to get there. And he says, but like, if you know any gays that would be up for meeting me, and he gives, you know, a description. He's like 25 or whatever. Tell them to meet me near the pitch and putt, right? At nine o'clock. Diamond banger. <laughs> and it's just, you think, wow. I mean, to me, that's really naive because I'm all, you know, you're ultra connected and you're digital and you're on, you can be in whatever apps you want. But back then, what would you have done? Um, and that collection's really eye opening, particularly if you're not in Belfast, of like how difficult it was to, to meet people and even discover who you were. It, yeah, I mean, I mean, it also speaks to me about the dangers. Um, you know, we can't divorce these experiences from what was going on around people. And I know, particularly, you know, in the early 70s, when people were being killed on the streets and, you know, I read Henry MacDonald talking about, he, he talked to some gay men who had been around at that time. And the fear was that there was a purge explicitly against gay men, gay Catholic men who were, you know, sort of, you know, maybe um, on the streets at nighttime, looking for company, looking for companionship, and we're more prone to the sort of sectarian assassinations that were going on at the time. Now, to me, that's a history within a history. And again, what you talk about with the Prony Archive, it's it's fascinating hearing that, as you say, the naivety, but also it's it, it's it's sort of vulnerabilities of people who are marginalised who are going to those sort of lengths to meet people and, and potentially putting themselves in dangerous situations that, you know, you, you would look at now and think that's really unsafe. And when you look at the violence that was happening in Northern Ireland at that stage, on top of all this, it was, yeah, the, the limitations, you talk about communications, the limitations in trying to meet somebody, trying to get companionship, friendship, but then you had the, the, the double sort of bind of the violence on top of that. So, I mean, I think it's something that, you know, broader historiographies of the troubles haven't really come to terms with in terms of understanding and appreciating the gay experience yeah absolutely i mean if you think about you can't go meet someone normally quote unquote like just in the pub so you, you can't do that that's out and even if you do find someone else 
like, and you think it's a very small proportion of the population who is queer, you probably can't go to the cinema together because you're worried about being found out. So, like, what can you do? You're just so limited that then you are pushed into more vulnerable situations, like you say, and sad situations that you wouldn't have had to be in if, if it had been more accepted in society. You know, if you got to the point where we are today or even 10 years ago, and that was heartbreaking speaking to the gay men that went through that. And you, you just, your heart goes out to them because all they wanted was to find you know, romantic love. That's all. But, but they weren't allowed. And the places, because if you think about what the violence does economically, it, it closes everywhere down. So the city centre then is a ghost town. The city centre is where you have to go because there aren't enough, thankfully, enough queer people that they can be like, right, only queer Protestants over here, only queer, you know, we've got our own clubs. It's like that was a melting pot, quite a rare one. But that has to be in the city centre because the geography means that that's the place you have to go. The city centre then is just more dangerous not just because of the troubles, but just from gay bashings and so on. So you were in a vulnerable situation, which is why when I heard about it, it was explained to me, I realised how lucky I was in terms of just being able to go out go out clubbing without really having to worry that much about it. And how brave is kind of like a, a form of protest, even just going out. It's like even turning up to the parliament is braver than lots of people would have experienced elsewhere at the time. You're you're talking about there about the the lengths people go to. It reminded me actually of a funny story that was that's in the pod about the National Geographic. Club. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. If you want to tell that, Jordan, that that is that is worth hearing. Yeah. So in Oma, Darren was uh, sent to Oma when he was in the reserve. So before he started training to join the RUC proper, he was a reservist and he was sent to Oma. It's a place I know well. It's where my family's from, and I was really interested in. Finding out, like, was like, what would it be like rocking up here as a young gay guy in Oma? Because it's quite a small town, and when I was sort of going there in the summer holidays, it never struck me, even in the late nineties or nineties, of having a big gay scene. And when we went there, we heard about how the Royal Arms Hotel, which is on the main street, they had a room upstairs, and what the guys had done is a club of gay guys, and they had. I can't remember how they communicated it, but they basically were able to get out the message that if you come to the Royal Arms at this time, they're going to meet up and they'd hire a room. It literally was just that for people to meet. And what they did was someone stand down at the bottom of the stairs with the National Geographic magazine. And they would, people would walk in and say, are you here for the National Geographic Society, sir? And they go, no, I'm here for a pint. And you'd be like, Anyway, sir, no problem. And then someone would go, yes, I am here for the National Geographic Society. And they'd be like, oh, upstairs. And that was the code to get you up. But then they got rumbled and they moved to another pub in Oma. And another funny story, They eventually the pub owner must have cottoned on or there were complaints because for whatever reason, they wanted them out. And they went up to them and said, can you take me to your leader? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like Like, which one of you speaks for you all? Um, and again, you think, I mean, being in Oma compared to being in Belfast must again be really, 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 really difficult. And yeah, that's the length. And that was just people wanting to get together. That wasn't even like wild parties. It was just to be able to talk to other gay people. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind back a couple of minutes. Uh, you're talking about the garrison, about witnesses to the, the sort of community, the LGBTQ community and, and the stories. But I'm going to talk about the witness in, in the other context. And after the aftermath of Darren's murder, getting a hold of witnesses proved a tough role for the RUC to get. And I, I can understand why. Because to be to be take, given a statement that you were in the parliament was the, was the state that you were gay. And some people weren't out. So you can understand how the police investigation at that point was struggling. If, if, if they couldn't get a hold of witnesses. But that, that is a position we put people into by not accepting who they were and not accepting the community that they belong to. We, we put them into that. Do, do you feel as if the RUC were then on, a, on the back foot for the investigation from that point on? Yeah, I mean, what really surprised me about that was speaking to people and then saying, like, first of all, you could get fired for being gay in Northern Ireland for being queer right up till 2003 that blew my mind I, mean, I did not know i just assumed that it had come in earlier but it was it was 2003 
So right up until that point, if you're photographed there or you're somehow outed, because people said that you had people having a few drinks and then hanging about outside just to see who was going in, to see if they knew people. So like I said, it was, it was pretty brave plucking up the courage to even go, get in. When the murder happens, there's like hundreds of people in that bar and they're all ushered outside because they're trying to get away, as you would understandably do. And then they're faced with this situation where if they give a statement, are the terrorists going to find out? Right? That's that's number one, completely understandable. Number two, they may have had brushes with the REC before, right? Whether they'd been, you know, having public sex or whatever, because at that time, you know, as is explained quite often, you just you couldn't date normally. It just wasn't like that. So it was much more commonplace to meet guys in public because you did most people at that point, particularly with the young, didn't live in the room. So had they had a brush with the RUC before, in which case the last thing they want to do is go up to them and give a statement. And then the third point was if they give a statement, where's that going to go? Is that going to get out? Is that then basically coming out publicly? Like you say, like that's, that's the end of it. Are they going to lose their job? Are they going to be burnt out of their house? And I, I spoke to a lot of people and people who, didn't end up getting into the podcast and the guilt lives with them 20 27 years on they knew what had happened to darren was an attack on on the community and they wanted to do something about it but they were just too scared for all those reasons and that guilt you know they really really did want to help there were people there with with blood on them who just had to get away as soon as possible because they were terrified their entire lives would end if they gave a statement and so then, yeah, if you're looking at this from a police investigation point of view, well, what do you do? You've got hundreds of witnesses, which should be a good thing, but then you're going to have to try and get them individually. Lots of brave people did come and give statements and the REC went back and they um, put out, you know, did you see anything? They had, they had cards and they did have over 100 people respond to them. And Niall from the podcast, who was working at Car Friend, he actually worked as kind of a mediator trying to get people saying, look, I'll work with the police. And he very courageously did manage to get a lot of witness statements put together and get the police who could get in contact. The parliament had a membership system by that point. So you could sign up and you save money. You got a free birthday party if you wanted. So it was this great value. But what it also meant was your details were on file. So the police could then use that to try and track people down. Problem with that was there were people at the time that weren't out, and then police going to their door. You know, well, why? You know, whether it be wives or girlfriends or workplaces, saying, "Well, why were you in the?" You know, when this policeman got shot, because obviously it was widely known on the news. So it's just so complicated. It wasn't just a you know straightforward investigation then, because you're dealing with a really vulnerable community who have been treated so badly and are really at risk and so yeah must have been very tough for them to try and get those witness statements and so in the aftermath you have you know comments from ian paisley and Sinn fein and and the usual sort of political um characters can you talk a wee bit about that and what emerged in the aftermath of darren's murder well darren's murder came at a really difficult time in terms of the peace process so the peace process as we know it now was in its kind of infancy then so you had back channel talks going on between the british government and the ira and they were trying to bring Sinn Féin in that was very much about this move towards peace but the dup and ampiously in particular didn't believe it you know he says they're, they're not going to change they're not going to get rid of the guns and dharma's the first police officer killed since 1994 and it had got to a point you know, when I spoke to people, they were like, we actually thought this was done, this was over. And so for Republicans to have murdered such a young police officer in the middle of a gay bar in front of hundreds of people, like that is ballsy. That is, that's a statement. So then that can be used basically saying, look, look, it's happened again. You know, you said we need to speak to them. You say we need to go in to talks, but look what's happened yet again. Another Protestant policeman shot dead. Then Sinn Féin at the time, if I remember correctly, did say it was a tragic loss of life. But then to July 1997, two police officers, or you see men are shot point blank range in the back of the head just afterwards. So it feels like he could be used in whatever way, you know, this police officer's tragic loss of life, those ones aren't, you know, 
Paisley and the gay community didn't exactly have the greatest relationship, but you know that's a tragedy then. It wasn't before. But in terms of history, that would have been the first file coming across Tony Blair's desk. You know, his photo came across Tony Blair's desk just as he comes to power. That's the first murder in Northern Ireland he would have had to deal with. And he was determined to get peace. So it came at a really, really fragile time. I mean, we're talking about the, the sort of political fallout from it, but the press, the media weren't exactly kind darn either. You know, there's a great, there's a great powerful quote in the podcast that Darren was murdered by terrorists, but assassinated by the press. I mean, do you want to expand on that a wee bit? Yeah, so speaking to Darren's brother, Scott, um, Scott was incredible speaking up for his brother, and he'd never done it before. And when I met him before we started making it and, and spoke to him and found out more about it, he was one of the reasons that I really, really wanted to do it, to tell the story. Scott's 15, his brother's just been killed. Scott didn't know his brother was gay. Scott didn't know his brother's in a gay bar. And he goes into a local newsagent to see the people behind the shop laughing at the, the Sunday world because Darren's a gay, you know, he's a queer. And that's like, imagine you're a 15 year old and you've lost your brother, but now you also have to deal with the fact that he's gay. And back then that wasn't okay. Like that, that, that was something to be ashamed of. So you've got to deal with all of this on top of it. And the fact your brother's been murdered and the press because Darren had been suspended. So in the podcast, we go into this suspension and what happened. They really kind of rounded and Darren was gay sex. So it was gay RUC man murdered in gay bar. Or are you see man murdered in gay bar in gay sex probe, gay sex ring? There was lots of different mentions in the tabloids, um, but none of them had been proven. So that's one thing that we go back and do. We dig into this and we go to try and find out where these came from, and none of them were proven. And we we speak with the um, editor of the Sunday World, Jimmy McDowell, who comes on and, and speaks to us. And fair enough, he he apologises to the family and explains. Like it just was so different back then that to be gay and a policeman was shocking and titillating and people bought those papers as much as the journalists were wrong and you would never do that today. I mean, people still bought those papers. But for me as a journalist looking for me as a journalist looking back, it's kind of unbelievable that you would and we just never would today treat any victim like that before. But it was not like young man loses life serving community or it, it really did go in for the fact that he was gay in a gay bar. He was a regular in a gay bar. Um, and there's quotes, you know, regular homosexual, John says, just things that today you think, what? Just would never, ever have happened. But that was then really difficult, obviously for his family and friends to have to, to deal with that shock of not only his murder but then the way he was publicly outed to so many people you know he didn't choose he didn't get to choose to come out the way he wanted he was outed then by his murder and by the way the press treated him yeah i mean the the, the echoes of that for me are in one of the cases one of the people that i have a lot of investment in and it was the murder of anthony mcleave in 1979 yeah well i say a murder there's a general feeling that it was an accident that, that was the official line, but definitely Jeff Dudgeon and other people have talked to, and certainly the evidence I've seen in the inquest report suggests that he was murdered. But the, the inquest, when it eventually did take place, a year and a half after his murder, the headline and the, and the papers carried it, that was a comment by the coroner or, or somebody in the, in the inquest, was homosexual drowns in own blood. And you know that's wow. that, that's that's the headline. You know, it's it's this is a guy's life we're talking about here. It's a it's a it's a guy. He's called Anthony McLeave. You know, he's not just you know this headline, but the headlines created. And and me and Sam have talked about this quite a lot about the idea of dehumanizing people to make them more susceptible to attack. And you know, we do that very well in Northern Ireland and and any sort of ethnic conflict across the world. And you know, to me, that's a double tragedy. The fact that this family have lost a son and a brother. And not only that, they'd lost a, another son six years previously, Anthony or uh, Sammy McLeave. But now they're confronted with this headline a year and a half later, homosexual drowns in own blood. And I mean, 
I've just got it in front of me here. It's um, a letter uh, from the inquest that Jeff wrote, Jeff Dudgeon wrote on behalf of the of Nigra, the Gay Rights Association. And this was a, like just just about a year after um, Anthony died, and he was asking the coroner, you know, what's the delay in the inquest? Um, you know, the value to be gained from the inquest, any evidence will be increasingly diminished by the passage of time. And he said, you know, we're looking to engage a solicitor based in London um, and an expert in the coroner's course to act on behalf of myself and the Gay Rights Association and the family. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's sad when you see this effort being put in by people like Jeff and, you know, people who, who are advocating on behalf of human beings fundamentally. And then on the other hand, you have the press completely dehumanizing people and reducing their life to an offensive headline. The point that you make about the um, newspaper headlines, 1979, homosexuality is still illegal at that point. So what that's going to have done to the family back then is not just like homosexual drowns in own blood is an absolutely horrendous headline, but also you imagine what the reaction of neighbours and friends and family and so on is, because he's not criminalised, he is a criminal. And the, the lack of sympathy that lots of people would have had we would struggle with today, but it makes you realise how brave then that Jeff and the rest of Niagara were for standing up because they're essentially going, yep, we're gay, which is criminal. They're putting themselves at risk of arrest and to fight those cases must have been so, so difficult because if it was difficult in the 90s, then what must have been like in the 70s as well with everything going on? Really, yeah, and like I, I cannot imagine being that brave, as brave as they would, because society's changed so much around us now. Yeah, and feeding into that, I suppose, is the stories in the round seventies where male honey traps were used to trap men who were gay but hiding it and, and, and lure them in, and they were turned into being state agents or state actors at that point. But again, this is created because we made it criminal. We made people hide who they were and kept it underground. So it became seedy. It became something that you didn't want exposed. And then you were then exploited for it. I mean, the gay community has been exploited for so long. And only this weekend, we've actually had another attack in Belfast. A, a gentleman was attacked by 10, 10 fellows. And um, my friend from work straight away texted me and said, this is why we need pride. You know, I mean, this, this is it. It's still going on. So, yes, we've come a, a mile. We're, we're, we're light years ahead of where we were. But we're still in a situation where people are being targeted on their sexuality. Yeah. I think that for us in Northern Ireland, it's been so complicated, as you guys well know from the, your podcast and speaking to everyone every week, that all the airtime has been taken up by this one thing. This is the one thing that we talk about, and it's the one thing. But the rest of the world doesn't stop. The rest of the world is going on, and Northern Ireland is like hitting very, very quickly all of the different problems that the rest of Europe and the UK and the Republic have, you know, it's just for us, we have this layer on top that we always talk about. So you, we want to deal with the homophobia and the transphobia and the racism, the economics, and we have to because those are realities that are happening. But at the same time, we also have this huge elephant in the room that just won't go away that we're also concentrating and spending so much of our energy and time on. So it's much more difficult. I feel as a journalist when I report internationally and you know, working away, you suddenly realise how much time has been spent. That, that It always just comes back to that one thing, which makes it much more difficult for other groups and other issues then to get traction and get talked about and get movement. One thing that really strikes me, Jordan, and it comes across very clearly in, in the podcast, um, when you know, Blood on the Dance Floor, you're hugely invested in Darren's story, emotionally invested, and I think, to me, that's something I've experienced myself with with some of the research I've done, and I think it's only through empathy and and trying to get to know the person, even in death, that good you can get this good authentic story out there. It's about humanizing the person, basically. Did you find though? Um, you've talked about mental health, and you know, I know you've talked about it a fair bit, and myself and Sam have talked about it quite openly. And actually, one of the you know initial influences behind doing this podcast was 
that we would talk about our mental health and we would talk about um, issues around men's mental health specifically. So did you find you were living and breathing this this story for for a sustained period of time? What what effect did it um, have on your mental health and your emotional state? And did you find, because I know personally when I've done this sort of thing, I find myself thinking a lot about the person, even day to day, even at nighttime, having dreams, nightmares sometimes. Did, did this story have that effect on you as well? Yeah, when I say it's changed my life, I really, really do mean it's changed my life. One of the things that when I clicked in the photo and learned more about Darren's story, one of the things I immediately felt sick, like I felt nauseous. And the reason I felt nauseous was I thought there's 10,000 people in the RUC Imagine you were one of the the only ones or very few who was going to be open about it. And, you know, you don't have to be queer to understand that vulnerability. Everyone's gone through vulnerability. But I just had this such a strong response of, Jesus, can you imagine how vulnerable you would feel? Like the pressure. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to do it, because I just felt so strongly that I wanted to know about this guy who was able to do this. The other stories as well, you know, from the drag queens, from Tina and Trudy, Teddy and Lady Portia, they gave me real life. They were very helpful because they were such good crack and describing that energy, that release of energy that you got from stepping on the dance floor from the first time. And that really kept me going because as much as this is a tragedy, this is a story of someone's death, not just ending there. Darren's legacy changed policing in Northern Ireland. I was determined I had to have some sort of redemption, not just for Darren's story, but also episode six, the last episode of the podcast, is all about the progress we've made, how much better things have come, how much better my life is. That helped because I was able to say it's not all just totally mindless, but definitely when you hear people's stories day in, day out of both murder and bereavement and homophobia it it's tough and it, i think what you have to or what i had to try very hard to do is not allow it to give me just a negative lens but unfortunately as a journalist like working in international journalism at the minute it's pretty bleak and and climate change is the other thing i work in so like <laughs> give me a break but yeah, these stories do take over your life, but I don't know why else I could have done this unless I cared that much. And I don't know why else you'd do it unless you cared that much about every one of these guys' stories. But the flip side of that is, yeah, it does. It absolutely stays with you, like you say. You're talking there, Jordan, about uh, your international work at the moment. Um, and in our chats, you've told us about working in Calibria and in Italy and Zona Norte and Rio. And you sort of, you're drawing comparisons between Northern Ireland and those kind of areas. Now, you've put down it, it, narco-terrorism, but in the truest sense of the word, they're paramilitaries. They're an armed gang that aren't authorised, and they control communities to an extent and operate outside the law. I mean, how much of a similarity is there between those areas and what you've witnessed in Northern Ireland? What I find really interesting about being Northern Irish is whether you like it or not, you're born into this club. The conflict club that wherever you go in the world you'll meet people who will either aggressively like support one side or the other or think that you're involved in something like pure ignorance but you're just in that club but also one of the things that i feel has really helped me is it gives you much more empathy and understanding for conflict so whether it be syria and yazidi or you know shia or sunni who are like but they're both muslims you know what could they have to fight about and i'm like guys let me tell you you do just get an understanding. And when I was working in uh, Calabria, which is the most southern part of Italy, it's the poorest part, and it's where the Nindrangada Mafia come from, they supply all the cocaine. Basically, 90% of the cocaine in Europe comes from them, one of the richest groups. But no one really knows much about them, which is how you know you're successful, because if you're an organized crime gang, everyone knows about you. you failed. But being there, the other people I was working with, so I was working with the European Commission, they really struggled with how insidious it was. So different shops, different businesses were owned. You know, they were mafia owned. Everyone knew that they were mafia owned. And I was with people from other parts of Europe. They'd be like, but if they know they're mafia owned, why don't they do something about it? And I was like, it's not really how it works. 
And that for me was really interesting. I could really empathize and understand ordinary people when I was speaking to them about what it's like living with the mafia and how difficult it is. Uh, in there, it's massive. It's corruption. It's really, it's the massive problem about corruption. But it is that insidiousness where it's been around for so long, it just ends up being accepted. And, you know, we went to a cafe, me and the other Europeans, not the Italians, load of guys and tracksuits and stuff. And we just we had an ice cream, had a nice time, had a nice chat with them and left. And then we, we spoke to someone at work and they were like, you went where? You did what? And like, like, you don't know who that is. And it was as, as simple as that. And that's the same as bars in certain areas, right? Where they are controlled. And I think that is very similar to Northern Irish society, even today where paramilitaries still have hold across. And Rio, like Brazil, very, very similar. It's just people go to these gangs and the favelas and the slums. You wouldn't go to the police. You would go to the local unit commander for justice, you know, if something happened, or even to get your TV reconnected or whatever, they have just taken over where the state has failed. They've just taken over. And that really resonated with me. There were such similarities. I live with a Colombian woman and she was talking about Colombia and the paramilitaries there. And definitely there are, you know, you can really see the links. I think the one bit where we're really lucky is that that period, 97, when Blood and the Dance was set, we've experienced this massive peace bonus, right? Like, and I'm me talking about being able to go clubbing and, and people today, as much as there is problems within the gay community and being queer, it's a lot better than it was. We've experienced what it's like to have peace and that investment. And so I feel that there's a stronger will to, to, to keep peace. But in many of these countries, like if you look at Bosnia, for instance, which had a peace agreement nearly around the same time, guys my age, you know, kids of their peace process, they've not seen any of that money. They've It just has never arrived. The jobs never came. The tourists never came. The promises were never kept. And so you think, how much more difficult must it be to convince those lads? No, stay. We know this is going on. An ex has been shot, but, but stay the course. Keep peace without being able to say, look at this building, look at these new schools, look at all of, you know, that must be so much more difficult. So definitely my work abroad and the work that I do at the BBC World Service, being Northern Irish has allowed me to understand things, I think, in a way that people who aren't or haven't been in a conflict would struggle with. And I think the other thing that came through what you were saying there was each of them was sort of preceded with how poor the area was. These, these things don't yeah. happen in the affluent areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, me and Gareth have talked before. I mean, there was—I don't remember a rap happening in Cherry Valley or the Malone Road. To be honest, at Belfast, it was always the Shankle of the Falls. It was always the working class, lower classes areas. And I think that's where you see the likes where these paramilitary groupings can come in. Um, and not not always are they hated either, because some of, some of the areas that they live in actually a respect them and b want them there because they do provide some form of security when the state of field and can't police or can't deliver justice or protection these groups do so it's imperfect but it does work for some of these communities yeah i mean yeah, that's the same in in brazil is that the, the the police were just completely absent until 2012 they just they just weren't there and so they filled that vacuum but it does does make me realize um just how grateful i am to have experienced of peace post post ceasefire compared to looking at other places that have similar backgrounds, but they've never got any sort of progress out of it. So Jordan, just to round off and thanks for taking the time tonight. Can you talk about what you're working on at the moment and what, what we can expect in the future? Because obviously I'm thinking in terms of blood on the dance floor, as you say, maybe took you by surprise how successful it, it was. And it was well-deserved, the success that you got on the back of it. So how do you follow up something like that? Well, I've got plenty of stories that I really want to tell. And my passion is getting into worlds. I never want to do anything about the Troubles because I had you know left Northern Ireland and gone to London. And I wanted to tell stories about us, about success and progress and everything. But the reason I wanted to tell Darren's story and the story of the Parliament was it is a world that 
I wish I could have experienced that dance floor that night it opened. The old, like you know, the first open gay club in the whole of Northern Ireland. The drag queens, the bravery, th- those are worlds that, that that's what I buzz off is just like exploring these worlds we've never really heard about. The music as well is so important to me. So I've got a lot of stories now about different worlds, more LGBT stories, stories of injustice that haven't quite come up and stories of celebration as well about people who have just done things that have changed all of our lives but we've never really heard of them so hopefully doing that and hopefully building on blood on the dance floor too for people fantastic well i'll look forward to hearing more about that and you know wish you every success in the I'll future i'll be back right i'll be you'll, yeah. you'll get me back yeah, well, yeah. oh but, yeah yeah well, well, you know, we'll have to see how the tricky second album goes to be honest <laughs> you know yeah myself myself and sam calls. In that wee uh, intermission we had, the accidental intermission, myself and Sam were talking about how, um, yeah, we we'll, we'll definitely want you back on, and there's plenty more conversations yeah. to have. I think. Yeah, I, I think I think there's there's a good there's a good chance of a crossover there of some description. We'll yeah. have to iron out what it is because a lot of stuff to do with Northern Ireland. We, we always get told off this. It's always dark. Our our shrapnel's dark. Yeah, but it's a dark period, and it's kind of hard to make light of things yeah. that are so so tragic. But you found a way to do it with this. So we, we'd be keen to sort of work with you in some shape or form to see, well, what, what else can we tell? What else can we show about Belfast that doesn't put us in somebody's mind as being the place that bad things happened? That there was there was positivity here. Yeah. But that, that's the thing about the Northern Irish sense of humour is that everyone that we interviewed and everyone you talk to, no matter the tragic event, they will have humour and find humour, even maybe very, very dark humour, but they will have it. And they talk about Northern Irish people, you know, interviewing them. Well, like if you're interviewing for news or whatever, or documentaries, and you're just trying to get that one emotional bit. But we are so like, okay, yeah, do you know what? I, that, you know, we do find the humour in everything, in every situation. I do think we're one of the funniest people in the world. I can say that with a tiny bit of conviction because I work with a lot of people around the world. <laughs> we tend to agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for tonight. This has been brilliant. We we appreciate the time and we appreciate you telling the story of Darren because it, it did, it, it jogged a few things in there that maybe we had just missed because of what well, everything, you know yourself, it's just a mire. And that, that just brought one of those stories right out for us. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's available you, on BBC Sounds and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please yeah. do. Let's listen to Shrapnel first and then go over and have a listen to Jordan. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs>